0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, an analysis of the historic change in U.S. policies toward Latin America. Yes, there's a shift in Cuba, but the Obama administration is putting its stamp on other parts of the map, too. We'll explore those issues and more, but first, Gabriela Conchola is here with the latest on those changing policies and our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
1: U.S. President Barack Obama called for the end of economic sanctions on Cuba. Obama repeated his call for a major change in relations between the United States and Cuba in his annual State of the Union address this week. As His Holiness Pope Francis has said,
0: diplomacy is the work of small steps. And these small steps have added up to new hope for the future in Cuba. And after years in prison, we are overjoyed that Alan Gross is back where he belongs. Welcome home, Alan.
1: We're glad you're here. Gross served more than five years in Cuban detention facilities charged with crimes against the Cuban state for his work with Cuba's Jewish community. Gross in the U.S. said he was connecting community centers to the Internet, but Cuban officials say he was caught with electronic spying devices. Arranging a prisoner exchange that included Gross was a key part of the diplomatic shift between the countries. The day after the speech, a high-level delegation from the U.S. State Department arrived in Havana to open talks on migration, human rights, and the opening of embassies. This was the first high-level State Department group to visit Cuba in 38 years. We'll have more on these historic changes in U.S. policy later in this program. A murder mystery has Argentines out in the street protesting and showing support for the victim. Special Prosecutor Alberto Nisman. Nisman had recently accused President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and members of her government of a cover-up. Nisman said Argentina's current government had tried to erase Iran's connection to the bombing of a Jewish center in Buenos Aires in the mid-1990s. The bombing killed 85 people. Nisman was killed the day before he was to publicly present evidence in the case. Initially, investigators said they believed he committed suicide. But President Fernandez says she believes Nisman was murdered. Forensic evidence is now pointing investigators toward agreeing he was murdered. Argentina has the largest Jewish population in Latin America and is among the top countries with Jewish populations outside Israel. Speculation about the death of poet Pablo Neruda has Chile wondering if he was murdered. Official reports had Neruda dying of cancer in 1973, just two years after he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Neruda died just 12 days after a coup that brought dictator Augusto Pinochet to power. Neruda had been a strong supporter of President Salvador Allende, who died in the coup. Chilean authorities exhumed Neruda's body two years ago, but tests did not show any traces of foul play. Chile's government announced this week it will reopen the investigation and run tests with new technology to finally set the question to rest. That favorite cup of coffee that gets your morning started could soon be more expensive, and you'll have coffee rust to blame. The rust is a plant disease affecting crops from Mexico to Peru. This past week, El Salvador announced it had lost at least a third of its coffee crop to the rust. Coffee crops in Central America are again hard-hit this year. That will likely affect the higher-priced brands. For Latin Pulse, I'm Gabriela Canchola.
0: Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out returns this week as we acknowledge our listeners in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We had more listeners in Vancouver this week than any other city worldwide. Thanks to all our Canadian listeners. And now, this week's focus on changing U.S. policies and the countries seemingly aligned to oppose U.S. diplomacy. Later, we'll be looking at CELAC, a hemispheric group that pointedly excludes both the U.S. and Canada. And because we're thinking of our Canadian listeners, of note is the nudge that Canada provided in bringing the U.S. and Cuba closer together last month. Both the Canadians and Pope Francis provided crucial diplomatic help to bridge the gaps between the Obama administration and the Castro regime. This week, we turn to Adam Isaacson at the Washington office on Latin America, WOLA, for analysis. We talked to Isaacson via Skype from his office in Washington, D.C., about not just the tectonic shift in Cuba policy, but also the wider reach recently throughout Latin America of President Obama and his team.
2: They are very meaningful shifts. And I think they're things that the Obama administration had wanted to do for a few years, um, but for a variety of reasons, both um, maybe some some folks holding them back in, in their congressional majority in the Senate, but also um, the Alan Gross situation in Cuba. They weren't able to make a lot of it happen. Now, um, the tone really has shifted. And note that this is all shifting just uh, three months or so ahead of the Summit of the Americas that's going to happen in April in Panama. Um, I think at that summit, Uh, you're going to see a lot more openness toward dialogue with the United States among countries that have not before you're already seeing it. Um, you've seen, um, well, Brazil has announced a state visit um, the, that Dilma, this time uh, Rousseff. It, as long as there are no new uh, revelations of NSA um, uh, spying on Brazil, should be coming in September. Um, Abel Morales the other day in, in Bolivias uh, expressed a strong interest in reestablishing ambassadors for the first time since 2008. Um, you know, there's Relations, of course, with with traditional friends like um, in Mexico and and Honduras, Mexico and Colombia, rather, are pretty, uh, well, good. And the the, the presidents of Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala are in constant dialogue now on uh, things like citizen security. So, yeah, it's not making, except for Cuba, it's not making huge headlines, but there is more of a desire in the region, I think, to engage with the United States rather than simply try to posture oneself as independent of the United States. I could be overstating this, um, but I think you're already seeing it, and I think uh, they can maintain this momentum. I would add, too, just briefly, that the the executive order on immigration also um, uh, improved uh, the view of the United States, especially in Mexico and Central America.
0: We see that Vice President Biden has taken a lead role in Latin America. Uh, that is not just symbolic. He, he's made these overtures to Venezuela. We've seen the breakthrough with Cuba. Are, are we going to see a rapprochement with Venezuela too? Um,
2: I would hold off on the rapprochement with Venezuela just because it's not clear who to interact with there. Um, President Maduro... You know, we can all, it's a provocative thing to say, but uh, we can all try to bet money on whether Maduro will still be in charge of Venezuela at the end of 2015, the way things are going. Um, he may not be taken out by, uh, you know, by by the opposition that wants him out. It could just simply be a lack of control over his own his own coalition in Venezuela um, uh, that, that they find some extra constitutional way to remove him. But, you know, it makes it very hard uh, to have a rapprochement um, with someone that. You don't even know if they're going to be around much longer with the, um, the, the plummeting oil prices, the, the runaway inflation and shortages, the, uh, the crime problem, and, and other things happening in, in Venezuela. Uh, U.S. policy would, rather than seeking to simply you know, embrace Maduro, would be to work with uh, Venezuela's neighbors, especially Brazil and Colombia, to try to guarantee some sort of soft landing if things really go off the rails there. Um, but you made you started your question with an important point that is worth highlighting about President Biden's role. Um, it's remarkable to the the extent to which the recent changes in U.S. policy have been driven entirely by the White House. This is not a State Department initiative. This isn't John Kerry. This certainly isn't the Pentagon. This is not you know. It's it's coming from. Um, just a few people in in Biden's office at the National Security Council and and um, uh, in, in in the West Wing of the White House. Um, but we have
0: seen Secretary of State Kerry also engaged in the region.
2: I don't entirely agree with that. I think uh, Secretary Kerry has paid very brief visits to the region and has devoted the vast vast bulk of, of his attention elsewhere, particularly the Middle East. Um, and maybe that's as it should be, with you know things like the Ukraine and ISIS and and, and those kinds of uh, more immediate threats. Uh, uh, relatively I think uh, uh, Secretary Kerry and and you know I think politically he's doing the right things but I don't think he's in the driver's seat at all.
0: And so it's it's Biden's office the National Security Council that are in the driver's seat when we talk about Latin American policy?
2: I think right now almost by default uh the, you know the bureaucracy the 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 the, the cabinet departments uh they're not there to do you know, policy changes. Ultimately, if you're going to change a, a posture toward a region or toward a few countries, it's going to have to come from political appointees in the White House. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that the State Department is you know, necessarily foot dragging, but they are certainly following the White House's very clear lead here.
0: And so then it would be the White House that's really pushing the Cuba initiatives, uh, White House Biden's office?
2: One hundred percent. And Ricardo Zuniga, the National Security Advisor, uh, or National Security Council's Office Director for uh, for Latin America, has gotten a lot of uh, credit, including the mainstream press, for having really played the uh, outsized role here. Uh, but Zuniga, along with uh, Biden's small um, staff working on Latin America, have, have really been the ones uh, carrying the water.
0: Anyone in Congress to cite that's helpful in this? Uh, Senator Leahy has often been... Um, very um, active in Latin America?
2: Yeah, on on Cuba, it has been um, Leahy, uh, Congressman Van Hollen from from, from Maryland, um, uh, who else? Jeff Flake on the Republican side from Arizona. Um, But it has been surprisingly bipartisan in Congress. I mean, those who are interested in traveling to uh, Cuba over the next few months and those who are in favor of um, uh, removing parts of the embargo are... um, both Democrat and Republican, you've got uh, an interesting coalition of sort of Chamber of Commerce pro-free trade Republicans and, and Democrats who always thought that Cuba, uh, the Cuba policy was a failure and, and was doing damage to us in Latin America. In, in the, and it's likely likewise the opposition to this move is is pretty bipartisan. Uh, probably the bulk of it is, is Republican. You know, the sort of the neoconservative impulse is to you know never never make any deals with authoritarianism unless it's pro-U.S. authoritarianism. Um, but then there are uh, there is a small contingent of Democrats like um, Senator Menendez and, and uh, Congressman Cirrus from New Jersey, who are Cuban-American and whose constituency uh, is rather old guard and, and does not want an opening to Cuba. So it's, it's, it's bipartisan on both sides. It's in the, unlike most things in Washington today.
0: We saw President Obama call clearly for removal of the embargo against Cuba. Is that really... A potential for happening in in the next two years given this very conservative congress
2: now i mean since the embargo has to be undone by legislation i don't see that happening um even if a slim or, or, or significant majority of the Congress actually favors it, uh, a lot of your key committee chairs uh, and, and ranking members, uh, you know, Rubio, Menendez, uh, and, and others can can block it uh, because they are opponents of it. Uh, they, they will do their utmost to stop it. And you know, in the Senate, you, you'd need 60 votes to uh, to get cloture and, and not have a filibuster on it on a bill like that. And I don't know if they've got 60 even if somebody like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio doesn't put a hold on such legislation. So, uh, yeah, I think procedurally it would be very hard to do, even with a majority in this
0: Congress. In the discussion over Cuba that um, the president has gone forward and has made some administrative moves uh, just in the past week, changing travel, changing other air regulations, are those going to be able to hold up? Because basically... He, he's allowing um, straight-ahead tourism with Cuba. People can bring back Cuban cigars, Cuban rum, those sorts of things which you couldn't do until about last week.
2: Well, you know, a few... Um Right now, that's not a a total lifting of the travel ban. Um, You're still going to have to prove that your travel was there for one of the 12 allowed reasons. Now, the most vague of those reasons was, quote-unquote, to support the Cuban people. But that still means that, you know, on the form or if, uh, you know, the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control ever asks about your travel, um, which they'll know about, uh, you're going to have to prove that you you actually were engaged in some sort of constructive activity and not just sitting on the beach in Vardadero. The... You know, and, and there is a difference between a large corporation making investments and, you know, doing millions or billions of dollars in, in, in trade in goods and services, you know, huge cargo containers coming in and out on one side, and on the other side, a tourist just filling, um, um, you know, his suitcase or backpack with, with a few bottles of rum and cigars. Uh, the economic <laughs> impact is dramatically different. Um, and I think that even, you know, even... I, I don't, even if we're not going to have a, a lifting of the embargo, we are going to have more of that economic interchange. Much of which in Cuba, to be honest, is going to benefit, you know, if there is tourism or things that look like tourism, it's going to benefit Cuba's tiny private sector. The state owned restaurants are terrible. If you can eat in a Paladar, you're going to. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, food and, and drinks and other services that you'll want are, are going to be much more easy to obtain through the non state sector, and it's going to beef up that sector. And of course, boy, if you've ever been to Cuba, um, and had people come up to you on the street and just ask about the United States, you know, ask about pictures they've seen. Um, it's it's there's so much thirst for knowledge about the United States that uh, the presence of more people, no matter what the purpose of their trip is, um, the presence of more people is, is, is from the United States is going to, but it's going to spread a lot of knowledge that people really want, and that is going to make things harder. Um, it's going to make it harder to keep a lockdown on political expression in Cuba.
0: President Obama said, uh, time to make a change in Cuba because 50 years of policy um, hadn't worked the way that conservatives uh, would have hoped. Uh, if you really look at U.S. policy in Latin America, big shifts over 50 years. We're starting to see a change in Colombia after more than 50 years, and some would say that the U.S. has been a big part of that. Um, certainly a big shift between U.S. relations in Brazil um, compared <coughs> to 50 years ago. But um, are we seeing really uh, not just a pent-up change, but, but a change that will be hard to match in regard to Latin American policy for presidents to come?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you're seeing a change over 50 years. I mean, you're also seeing a, a change in the environment in Latin America over 50 years, too, where um, the big, probably the two biggest changes for the United States are um, it's not a region of dictatorships anymore. It's a region where um, countries have actually even elected Leaders very critical in the United States, and in most cases, everything has still turned out okay. Um, so you know, whereas you know, even when in, in the nineteen eighties, when an anti-U.S. leader got elected, the, the knee-jerk impulse was to um, organize a coup. Um, now uh, the, the impulse is to either engage or try to maybe isolate them the way you would with any leader that that doesn't do things that you want, but but to treat them more like grown-ups. Um, the and that's other be- more the
0: relationship that we have with Brazil now isn't it very much
2: I mean Brazil it's what is it the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world it's not a, a, a you know it's not a country you're going to to treat like a, a third world backwater it, It's a country that that um, the United States has to deal with on, on a much more equal basis and it's a country that has um, you know exercised on many occasions the right to differ with US policy and um, the one time that that sort of the old, the old pattern maybe came out was, was uh, about six or seven years ago when, when the Lula government decided to try to broker a, a nuclear deal with Iran, uh, which went right against what the United States was trying to do in Iran. And, and the United States was quite sharp elbowed in saying, no, back off. This is not for you. Um, but within the region, uh, I think absolutely the United States uh, knows there is a big cost nowadays to adopting a policy in the region, especially in South America, that, that Brazil
0: is not down with. Thank you so much, Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America. Wola, our guest on Latin Pulse, thanks. Thank you, Rick, it's been a pleasure.
3: Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination and domination. Is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act.
0: Welcome back to Latin Pulse. The community of Latin American and Caribbean states, sometimes called CELAC, is a diplomatic organization that joins 33 countries in the Western Hemisphere, but excludes the United States and Canada. Leaders in South America push for the creation of CELAC as a counterbalance to the Organization of American States, the OAS, a group with a headquarters in Washington, D.C., that some say is dominated by the United States. Next week, CELAC will hold its fourth summit meeting, this time in Costa Rica. This follows an earlier diplomatic meeting of the group with Chinese leaders earlier this month. We asked Michael McCarthy for a preview of the upcoming CELAC summit. McCarthy is a fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies and formerly worked with the Carter Center on Issues in Venezuela. We spoke with him via Skype in Washington, D.C.
3: You know, it's a it's a really difficult and interesting question to sort of forecast what's going to come from the summit at the political level in terms of, you know, what the heads of state of the Salac member countries say when they get off the plane in San Jose uh, to go to the summit, you know. There's, there are always these headlines that are created by the opening remarks of, of, of heads of state. And then separate from that, there are the issues that the actual uh, summit addresses in terms of long-term development goals for SALAC for, for as, as, as a multilateral organization. So I think on the, on the first front, on the political uh, sort of terrain, I think we have potentially a very interesting summit where you have Cuba arriving at the summit uh in Raul Castro after his government has begun a process of sort of restarting bilateral relations with the United States government. And this is an important development in particular in the history of Salac since last year's summit was held in Havana. Uh Cuba was the president of the Pro Temp the, the Protemperate president of CELAC last year. And in Havana, the 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 summit last year kicked off with Raul Castro decrying uh, the United States uh, with Snowden and the NSA and all this and the big controversy surrounding uh, those uh, revelations. And so, you know, <clears throat> it's a much different political overlay this year with uh, with uh, sort of the beginning of a major thaw, it seems. And uh, you know, at the same time, that thaw took place. As a result of you know, you know, very very influential uh, sort of back channel negotiations with the uh, the two countries that are excluded from SALAC, you know, the United States and Canada, so it raises some issues about you know what really do we uh, need international bodies for that exclude two hemispheric partners and things like that. You know, I think you can still I think you can still find some reasons. <clears throat> Some, you know, th- there's still a, a, an enduring rationale for the CELAC, but it but it but it raises some questions at the same time. So I think this year you have a much different political overlay coming into the summit. So I think you're going to have a much different sort of overall spirit to the meeting instead of it being an anti-U.S. pro-Cuba sort of uh, sentiment on the street. Uh, there's going to be a much more uplifting, I think. Sort of spirit among Latin American presidents and Caribbean presidents about the future of hemispheric relations, uh, and, and in this sense, you know, Salac, which some of its founding members, such as Daniel Ortega, said was about you know getting getting ending Monroe Doctrine forever. Um, now you have to ask the question: Well, is Salac really sort of an organization that is about being against any anything or any particular sort of? Uh, you know u s policy, or is it now more about uh, finding a political space for Latin American and Caribbean countries to feel a bit insulated from u s and Canadian influences, if you will, um, and to make political decisions on their own uh, so I think the political backdrop is is like I said a very very different the, the contrast is striking from last year i think it, I think it will be very different from last year. Um, but then at the bare-bone, it's it sort of the day-to-day issues of what can be expected from the summit, uh, it, it's 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 not looking as though there are major issues on the table in terms of what foreign ministers and what different uh, agencies of Latin American governments are actually going to try and address. Uh, you know, the, the Costa, Costa Rica is hosting the summit, and the Solis government uh, is, you know, doesn't have a major development, a major international agenda in the region. It's mostly interested in economic development. And in that sense, I think you could see the summit really going in a direction of looking at sort of development goals, technology exchanges, improving the quality of universities, addressing your laundry list issues of, of kind of development uh, 101 in one way or another. So I, I think that those two sort of political and development sort of goals uh, or those two fronts are likely to coexist with each other during this forum well,
0: um, and that, well, even and though even though the solis government is probably the most leftist costa rican government in a long time um costa rica is still very much neutral ground so what you're saying is that celac is maybe going to get off into some other areas and and not be so polemic not be so politicized in in what they're doing
3: yeah i mean that's a, uh, there are two parts to that i think that's a great point. point first it's important to remember that coast the the Preceding Costa Rican government of Laura Chinchilla in fact you know was 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 president of Celac for half of its of Costa Rica's year as the, as the leader of Celac the the transition in government in Costa Rica overlapped with that one year term so to speak for Costa Rica being in charge So, you know, it's not as though the Southeast government had a lot of time, if it really wanted to make major changes to the agenda, there was already something in place. The point is that it's not just contending ideological visions, it's that CELAC itself as an organization has multiple roots, and it's not clear what its identity and future mission is really going to be um, outside of the creation of a political space uh, that is somewhat insulated, as I said, from, from North American uh, interest, by which I mean the U.S. and Canada, quite literally.
0: Let me raise that existential question. Even before this Cuban breakthrough, we've had people on the program question whether CELAC has any reason to exist now, um, that, that the geopolitical sands are shifting enough that, that maybe there's no reason. It, it, is there a reason for it to exist? Why not the OAS, the Organization of American States, taking on more of this flavor?
3: You know, post, uh, you know, the breakthrough in the potential watershed in U.S.-Cuban relations, it's certainly that question becomes even more uh, prominent in people's minds, without a doubt. And uh, I think, though, that CELAC uh, ultimately uh, is going to endure uh, not just because that Latin America and the Caribbean want to have a competing body with the OAS, but more because they want to make their own contribution in some way uh, to a new international architecture uh, for, uh, you know, on the international stage, if you will, geopolitically speaking. And by this, you know, we're talking about a kind of new normal uh, in 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 sort of multilateralism in the world. We're also talking, I think, to a certain extent about a situation in which, you know, uh, there is a place for Latin American leaders to strut around on a stage or a platform that they themselves built. And the, the simple idea that you have this space that is not that cannot be described in any way, shape, or fashion as the you know, backyard or, or as an example or indication of the fact that Latin America is the U.S.'s backyard, that itself is extremely important because it suggests a kind of possibility of autonomous decision-making within the region. Now, I want to say the possibility, I say the autonomy or the greater autonomy, because, you know, selac uh, has established a formal forum with China. Uh, just earlier this month, there was a meeting in Beijing between the foreign ministers of all the selac countries and, and, and China. And that forum has not only served, I would argue, uh, as as a place for discussing economic and commercial ties, but uh, there's undoubtedly sort of a political, uh, you know, an underlying political piece to that story in, the ter- in terms of what China's interests are in getting involved in diplomatic relations and shaping geopolitical trends in, in South and South America and the Caribbean. So you know, SELAC
0: is then a, a bridge to China?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't think, I think that bridge has already existed. What it is is a kind of, you know, putting the Putting the arches on that bridge, you know, sort of buttressing it further. Because what what, Solac, what the Salak China Forum does is give continuity at a diplomatic level to the already existing strong commercial ties between uh, the between South America, the Caribbean, and 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 uh, china so uh it's it's a formalization of an already existing pattern i would argue in some ways
0: michael mccarthy research fellow at american university center for latin american and latino studies joining us on latin pulse via skype from washington dc thanks so much
3: my pleasure Rick. hope to be with you again soon
0: that concludes our program on diplomatic issues in latin america special thanks this week to listener ellie frank suarez of falcone venezuela a disc jockey Suarez provided special music mixes for this program. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse@gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. We want to acknowledge our entire team, including Zach Cromer, who provided engineering and internet technical support, production assistant Gabriela Canchola, and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.